Hello, my name is Stephen Smith, the owner of 3Pi Squared, and this is the ABA Business Leaders Podcast. Before we get into the episode, I want to tell you a little bit about our membership program. 3Pi Squared has helped over 700 ABA practices start up and expand. Our membership has over 45 hours of content from experts in the fields of law, accounting, diversity and inclusion, childhood development, mindfulness, business development, HIPAA compliance, marketing and branding, billing, and more. We also have discounts on things like our 3Pi Squared handbooks, professional liability insurance, background checks, HIPAA compliant email, contacts, calendars, and cloud storage. The membership also includes 33 CEUs, live Ask Us Anything events where you can come on and ask your questions as you're going through the program. And in our app, you can also add anonymous questions and get your answers. To learn more about the membership, please go to our website, www.3pisquared.com and click on ABA Business Leaders. And now let's get to the episode. everyone watching today we have molly fashola here to help us with these uh topics and so molly is a california licensed attorney with eight years of experience in the healthcare industry she has worked with large and small company or small healthcare organizations advising on organizational liability staff and patient safety and with both state and federal compliance and also involved in clinical trials. So very happy that you're here to help us with some of these complicated topics, Molly. So our first topic is going to be uh, 2022 COVID vaccine mandate updates. So without any further ado, uh, Molly, feel free to take it over. Sure. Hi, everyone. So as I'm sure you know, there have been a lot of changes with fights. Uh, Last year was a very contentious issue, and there's still a lot of confusion, and there's not a lot of definition as to what is actually required. Um, But I'm just going to go over some of the latest developments and kind of try to give an idea of where you might need to be or at least consider for, for your particular either organization. And so, I think, sorry to interrupt, but before uh, we start into the, the actual, you know, federal things, uh, like, is it still best? Like, I assume it is, but like, is it still really county to county? Like mask mandates can be in some cities and then they're not in some cities and they're uh, like when you get further out into rural, it still seems like, you know, that's kind of easy going. No, no mask mandates, no real mandates at all. So is that still kind of mm. the case at the local level? Yeah, I think that's still the case. I think you're just going to have to go with what, you know, the local laws are. Although I will say, I think over the last, uh, maybe this year, there has been a lot more leniency in terms of mask mandates. Stringent states, as COVID's been going on, like New York and California, have even mandates regarding masks. So I think, you know, as people 
get more comfortable with COVID, uh, we'll continue to see those mandates. Um, but so on a federal level, there's been just a lot going on in terms of trying to figure out how the mandates are going to work in actuality um, and enforce those mandates. So I'm sure, as most people know, at this point, the Biden administration had announced back in September 2021 that they were going to issue two executive orders, actually, um, that would be directed towards federal agencies, uh, people who receive federal government funding, as well as federal contractors. That basically had some requirements regarding vaccinations and other just general COVID-19 workplace safety. And I'm sure if you've been watching this, you saw that that did not go over well in a lot of states. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so there's been a lot of court and legislative action trying to either force this executive order or uh, enjoin, which basically just means to prevent it from moving forward. Um, happen in terms of the executive order portion of the COVID-19 mandates is um, they have basically enjoined uh, the Biden administration from moving forward with that action. Um, that necessarily stopped the administration from continuing to issue uh, highly recommended points regarding COVID. It does stop them from restricting funding to those organizations that were not willing to abide by that mandate. So that's really what we're talking about here is, is funding going to be restricted if you don't abide by this executive order? And according to the legislator, no, as of right now, it's not. Who knows what will happen with that down the line? I think, like I said, since it does seem that people are getting more relaxed about COVID, there's a possibility that it will never be uh, management um, for organizations. So we're still waiting to see what happened. The most recent um, action, which was just um, about a month ago, um, now that there's not going to be any type of um, mandatory vaccinations. So the Biden is a little bit different than OSHA. Um, OSHA really is more so focused on uh, private sector and workplace safety um, and really applies to employers that have 100 employees. Um, but recently, just about a month ago, uh, the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit basically granted motion to dismiss a multi-district litigation challenge on the OSHA proposed mandate. But despite this, uh, OSHA has decided, well, they announced I think on she not going to implement that rule. In fact, they actually withdrew the proposed rule for the time being, though they have said that they plan to issue revised proposed rule, which we haven't seen yet. Um, but we don't know what that's going to look like. So I think they are backing off of the rule, um, but I think they are, we're going to see down the line that they're going to try to implement some type of workplace safety, maybe more lenient as we continue to work through everything going on with COVID. And then CMS is actually a little bit different than OSHA or the Biden administration's mandate because CMS really focuses on healthcare providers and they have they essentially require a different level of safety um, as it relates to staff and patients. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call them mandates, but they are highly recommended implementations of the vaccine. And they are making those, at least in part, contingent on continuing to receive Medicare or Medicaid funding. So CMS is still holding strong with, you know, the vaccine makes sense if you're a healthcare provider or who wants to continue to receive federal funding. So I think that's probably the next one that we come up in front of courts and see more legislation about. Um, but for right now, they have not really been backing down from initially proposed as a as a mandate. Mm. 
So this one obviously is important for our listeners. And so, you know, if you are accepting Medicaid and Medicare, I think it would be mostly Medicaid, right? Mo- mostly Mo- for, for the children, yeah. yeah. And so are they, like, flat-out denying claims at this point if, if you're not following this mandate? Or how, how does it kind of work there? So I wouldn't say that they are overwhelmingly denying claims, uh-huh. but they are definitely scrutinizing them much more closely, okay. especially for uh, healthcare organizations that that have consistently been seeing an influx in COVID cases and are not taking action mm. um, that is sufficient in their eyes to kind of prevent that, then you will start to see some more denials of additional okay. funding and things like yeah. that. Um, there are currently uh, 10 states, as you'll see in this. Yep. Actually, I think it's more this morning. Oh, really? States are trying to fight back on this. I think it might actually be up to 22. Oh, wow. Don't, okay. Don't quote me on that number exactly, <laughs> but it's, it's significantly more than at this point that okay. are going through legislative process to try to uh, essentially loosen. Okay. Okay. And like we already said, it's really still like, yeah, I, it's nice to see the restrictions going. I, I mean, I, I don't want to get into a political fight over COVID restrictions, but mm-hmm. like our local schools have lifted mask mandates. You know, it's nice for kids to be able to go to school and not have to wear a mask, in my opinion. You know, um, it's nice to see the numbers be way down, too. Right. So, like you said, we're going to kind of have to live with this, I think. I think everyone's come to that realization that this is not going Mm -hmm. away. And so but it is nice to see, you know, numbers going down and, and hopefully some of this is relaxing and it's not because it's just it's so difficult to know what to do. And do I have to force my employees to wear masks? Do I have to make sure they're tested? It's just really right. complicated uh, for business. Right. Owners. And I think what you and I talked a few months ago about this when it was starting. And I think even just trying to figure out who is going to pay for testing, yeah. who's going to pay vaccinations, and what happens if someone, you know, has an allergic reaction to the vaccination? Do they get paid yeah. time off? Just all of these things that come along with these mandates that just makes things very complex. Uh, as I mentioned before, even though the, you know, federal contractors and federal employees are probably going to see this um, loosen a little bit, I think, again, like similar to what CMS is doing, I think healthcare workers will continue to see a different level of scrutiny sure. just right. by virtue of the job that they do. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily know that that will mean a vaccine mandate, but, you know, MS could come out with something else that has certain, um, you know, sterilization requirements or, or, or sick leave, sick time requirements. I just want to caution the healthcare workers out there that, you know, what is done in other industries might not be similarly applicable in yours. So yeah. that's just one thing to keep in mind. Yeah, I think, and and I'm not going to try and uh, uh, like <laughs> make you quote the law, but I think in California, they are now requiring that you pay sick leave for COVID, right? Is that, is that, uh, mm-hmm. I think. And so that mm-hmm. was something that came out and a lot of our companies, you know, are in California are having a difficult time because, you know, they don't have the funds to just give people two weeks of sick time for COVID. And I guess it goes back. Uh, so they have to pay it even prior to it's it's does that make sense? Am I right on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right on that. And I think that's kind of the lot of business owners or administrators are going to see is like, do you, you know, fight the mandate? Or do you risk employees getting sick and then pay for sick leave? Like, there's there's real great way out of this situation for, especially for people in ownership or leadership positions. It can be really tricky. Yeah, for sure. 
All right, well, thank you for the COVID update. And now we're going to get into the No Surprises Act. Yes. So I, I over the last couple of months, um, just another, some of the other things that I do have been hearing a lot about this and getting a lot of questions about yeah. this. Um, so hopefully if anyone who's watching has questions, I can answer some of those. Um, so just generally, the No Surprises Act, a federal law that took that was implemented, took effect on January 1st of 2020. It had actually been, I believe, on in 2022. It had actually voted on in 2020, um, but they had a year kind of ramping up the implementation of everything. So now it's in effect. Um, the purpose of it is to reduce unexpected medical bills for patients that are in federally regulated, um, self-funded health plans. So that really focuses on um, treatment that's received that's outside of network. And so I know I think as Steve's listeners go, there's quite a few people who do in-home help or who already are part of network. It's kind of confusing how this might apply to you. But uh, one of the examples I gave Stephen earlier is just if you happen to have an emergency situation um, and you know you are referring them or sending them to a emergency setting to get treatment um, and they are then seen by someone who's not in their network, then this could potentially apply. So it might be something to um, just kind of give them a little bit of ahead of time so that they know uh, what they what their rights are and what they might be able to expect. Um, so basically, like I said, it's it really applies if a patient, for example, I have on the slide, if a patient goes to an in-network hospital for a surgery by an in-network surgeon, um, but unknown to the patient, the anesthesiologist is actually out of network, and then down the line, the patient gets a bill from that anesthesiologist was thinking that this whole uh, surgery and services covered, at least in part, by the insurance. So that's really what this act is trying to avoid, different uh, ways of doing this. One of the first ways is just disclosures. Um, there's a heavy emphasis on disclosures with this act that show the requirements um, particular provider that the patient is going to see. So under this act, there's a lot of rules and guidelines as to what providers need to involve. So that's one thing. Another thing is uh, billing. Um, there's a requirement that you provide, you know, a good faith estimate of what the services might cost. They're meant to move forward with the services from the patient with their full understanding that they might have some out of pockets. Um, so this act really kind of implement a, a lot more of an onus on providers um, to make sure that their patients are well informed before receiving treatment that might be out of network or out of their pocket directly. Okay. And we do like, you know, even uh, my, my, with us, you know, our uh, ABA company, we work with some providers out of network. So when we're like giving someone maybe their financial responsibility agreement uh, notice, mm -hmm. is that where we would put that? Like, you know, here's the rates that we charge. These are the, the things that may not be paid if you're out of network. Is that what we would be doing in that situation? So as part of this act, um, they actually provided four different closure forms that should be utilized when having this discussion with patients. So I've been seeing a lot of providers who um, are creating packets mm -hmm. along with their consent forms, uh, whichever applicable disclosure form from this act, and then having that discussion with that patient and getting all of those things taken care of at one. Okay. So um, just a couple of, so I think if you go to the slide about the forms. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, there's four different forms 
that can be utilized depending on the circumstances that the patient is going through. Um, the first one is a standard disclosure, which is just a really basic disclosure. It writes, it explains the potential, you would then in that circumstance explain the potential to have an out-of-network out provider. And there's another part of this, which is the good faith estimate, which I mentioned before, where providers are essentially required based on their rates um, that they know at the time to provide an estimate of what the out-of-pocket cost yeah. might um, When deciding about the good faith estimate, it's really important that you providers do their to truly give a good faith estimate because there are some uh, remedies for patients if the good faith estimate turns out to be very erroneously off. Uh, I believe the threshold is $400. And then that gives the patient the right to kind of appeal that bill. So if let's say you do a good thing, you tell the patient it's only gonna cost you $500, but then they get a bill for 1200, mm -hmm. that's a difference greater than $400. So they have the ability then to start the appeals process on that bill and say, wait a minute, you told me it was only $500 bill for 1200. Now, just because they do the appeal doesn't necessarily mean that you are automatic of collecting, but you're going to have to justify why that 1200 came up, whether it's, you know, a different provider ended up stepping in last minute, um, you ended up using it of, in the anesthesia example, a different type of medication that you didn't know you were going to need, something along those lines where there's a justification for why the amount changed so drastically. Um, and we haven't seen this really in practice since this is so new. Sure. So I don't know how lenient they're going to be of being really far off on your estimate or, or what that's going to look like. So that's something we're going to have to see down the line. Um, but I mean, the best way to just really make sure that you are, your billing departments are aware of your rates, are aware of the procedures used for billing, are aware of provider rates so that you can provide the most accurate that you can. A question on that, because this is a tough, like this is a one of those things and I'm sure you're aware of it. Like sometimes, you know, if we're working at a network, especially with a new funder, we don't know mm -hmm. what their rates are, right? So we have to get authorization for assessment and then we submit and then they'll process the claim maybe, I don't know, five weeks later. And then mm -hmm. they're like, oh yeah, I see you build 120, but we, we only pay $40, right? Like that's the, that's the yeah. most that we pay. So like in those situations where you've not worked with a funder or you're not familiar with the funder's rates and they won't give them over the phone, right? Uh, what, mm -hmm. what do you do in those situations? Do you have any recommendations? I mean, that's a great question. That's one of the things that we're going to see how this works in <laughs> practice down the line. I think there is an expectation under this act that providers and health work really closely together. Um, and uh, the chargeback sheets essentially from health plans and trying to really, again, work together and figure out what a good estimate of a rate would be. Right. But unfortunately, I don't what happens in that circumstance okay. where you're not getting a response for weeks on end, but the patient needs the service yeah, yeah. today. But I, I'm not sure work out in practice. So I'm interested to see, you know, as we go along with this, but I imagine for the first probably even a year, maybe more of this implementation, there will be some leeway sure. to correct and, and, and see how this actually works in practice. Um, but I'm not sure what, what happens. And then one more question on that. So like, you know, like just using the, the simple example of like, okay, there's this non-network or uh, provider in the hospital and, you know, you gave them a quote for 400, but like you said, it cost 1200 and then the patient fights it. Like, is this, is this, who are they fighting it with? I guess, like, 
Like, is there some mechanism in place, like some government bureaucracy that they're submitting this to and then they're arbitrating it? Or is this just between the provider and the funder and the patient? Like, how does that all work? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so typically when patients are, I guess, fighting this, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word, really, um, I guess, tasked with taking this to their plan first through that general claims process first. And then the plan, I believe, would then go back to the provider and have that further discussion as to the charges and the justification behind them. But the discussion really shouldn't be had directly okay. with the provider. It should be patient to plan and then plan my understanding of how it's supposed to work. Okay. Okay. So managing claims, this kind of goes back to what we were just talking mm-hmm. about. Um, this is, again, the patient, the process that the patient uses. They have 120 days from when they actually uh, get the bill to process of appealing the charge if it seems incorrect or if it's way off. So one recommendation, I guess, for providers is to, one, familiarize yourself with the process and two, come up with the internal process of your own for how you would approach getting, like having someone in your billing department who is familiar with this and who can um, have access to the reasoning behind the charges and your average and the rates of your physicians or your support staff. So that's one thing that I think a lot of providers in hospitals are trying to implement now of having that go-to point person who's really familiar with this act and what it means. Because I know a lot of times uh, the general billing staff might not know the charges associated with particular services. Um, So starting now to kind of have someone who is that point person and who can pull up a procedure code and kind of keep their um, self-apprised of when those charges might change it is really crucial in this in this case because otherwise you're going to be sending out good faith estimates that are completely wrong and you're hit with continual patient um, dispute resolution claims trying to figure out why there's such a big discrepancy in the estimate versus the bill you received. Right. Because you could essentially have two out-of-network funders that you work with and one, you know, is within the $400, right? And then the other one doesn't pay as much and it's over the $400 issue, right? And and like, so you're, you still have the same standard, right? But because you're submitting to different funders with different payable amounts, you could get hit with this thing in one versus the other. Is that, is that right? Am I... Yeah, you could. If they're being charged separately, then okay. absolutely you could. If it's separate... Uh, billing or they're or they're being billed as separate line items then yes you could have two line and one that's not right okay okay and then as far as and because this is something like for me this is new i i think you called it chargeback can yeah. you just talk a little bit more about that and what that is and how to get that <laughs> because that i i yeah sure. <laughs> Um, so chargeback, I don't, I'm not sure if this is not a familiar term or maybe just by virtue of working in office, yeah. what I, maybe it's a lingo, I, I'm not yeah. sure, but basically it is a charge sheet where they're similar to like the, the service codes mm-hmm. that where a hospital has a sheet where they just kind of generally know the average cost of, of let's say, a appendectomy, mm-hmm. they generally know what it's going to cost when you factor in anesthesia, when you factor in supplies, 
um, provider time, support staff, all of that, they have a general idea about the charges related to that service. At my hospital, we call them chargebacks, yeah. and they're just sheets, okay. or I guess not physical sheets, but they are just documentation of what th that service is. And so I, I would imagine most relatively big providers have some sort of idea about those types of things right, as well. Okay. Um, if you are a smaller provider, maybe now is a good time to start keeping even just a spreadsheet your, for yourself right. where you kind of have the averages of what you've seen come before these recurring services that you provide. Yeah. So that gives you another idea of how to provide a good faith estimate when, when you need to do one. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. So like actually have some kind of a, sh would you, would you give that to the patient? Like, or how does it work? Like. Like if you, because like in our example, right, it's not like, you know, in a hospital, there's an, an infinite number of things that could, that you could come in for, right? Pretty much with, with ABA therapy, essentially, you know, we're going to have like an assessment, right? And that's typically, I don't know, 10, 15 hours of time, right? Mm -hmm. And then maybe you have, um, you know, therapy itself. And then, um, so should we just kind of break out those key things that we do and just kind of some like put some kind of an average amount down would that be good to do is that yeah i think that would be a great thing to do i would not necessarily share it with the patient i think each patient needs to get their own individual okay um kind of assess bill but right. i mean for example even just me when i when i do contracts for different clients I, and they ask me, you know, how much generally charge for a non-disclosure agreement? Mm -hmm. I typically tell them, you know, it takes me maybe four to five hours to draft one and this is my hourly rate. So on average, this is what you can expect to pay. Okay. So I think, and, and I know that off the top of my head because I've so done so many right. of them that I generally know what it's going to cost. So I think having something similar to that where you judge what your time is, what it costs you, what supplies are needed, the whole overarching charges of that um, is just a good thing to have on hand Got for it. when you do need to provide these Got estimates. It. And then based on the intake process, we would obviously give them a more customized quote, like you said, and then give them that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. All right. Yep. Exactly. Okay. And then I just, this is like, I'm not expecting an answer on this one, but I'm going to ask it just, to, just to keep you on your toes. Okay. Uh, but like, is there, is there any way uh, in your experience to get like non network or like out of network rates before submitting claims? Is Do you have any kind of idea on how that's possible? Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. I, yes, it does make sense. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think because that would be I super helpful, right? Like, cause that, that would, that right. would kind of tell us, okay, this is what you're going to expect to pay. Right. Um, and so in that scenario I gave you, which happens quite often is like, mm -hmm. I have no idea what their rates are because they haven't told me, uh, but we're going to submit the claims and see what happens. And that's literally what you're doing, right? Like, I don't know if they're going to pay $40. I don't know if they're going to pay a hundred dollars. I have no idea. So it's really difficult in those situations. I guess in those situations, would you just, you know, expect the highest and hope for the best? Is that like, would that be the best option? Potentially, but I think in those situations, you would really have to rely on the plan 
to provide you with as much information as they can. Okay. You can obviously submit your portion and what your estimate would be. But to, like, for example, if you were to call a patient's insurance mm-hmm. and they were to say, you know, that provider is not in our network, mm-hmm. um, you could then ask them, well, for this particular service code, what do you reimburse? Right. Um, and they can at least give you that information. Yeah. And then when you're providing the estimate to the patient, uh, and again, this let me just preface this by saying I don't know <laughs> for sure how this works in practice, yeah. but my thought would be then when you're providing an estimate to the patient, you can say, I'm not 100% sure how much this out-of-network provider charges, but I can tell you the insurance will reimburse such and such for this type okay. of service. So at, at least until you maybe, I mean, this is going to work out best for people who work with the same yes out-of-network yes. providers on a regular basis because then you can familiarize Correct. yourself. Um, but at least initially, if you can find out what the coverage is by insurance, you can at least let the patient know that this is all that's covered. It may be more out of pocket, but you can give them some type of information for them to make an Got informed it. decision. Okay. All right. I mean, that's it. Do you have any questions, April? No, it's all been very informative. <laughs> and I'm just trying to soak all in all yeah, the information. Yeah. I feel like you had some good questions yeah. there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So with the No Surprises Act, I would just say, I think the last slide kind of covers it, but familiarizing yourself is really important. There is a requirement of, if you do operate a website, having some of the disclosure forms available on your website, um, as well as a, a blurb, at least explaining what the patient's rights are in terms of receiving the estimate and things like that. Um, and then obviously just educating your providers and staff to know when a patient might be getting out of network services so that you can proactively get ahead of making the patient aware that this person is not in your network. Um, those are really the two things that I would say you want to, uh, that a provider or an organization would want to focus on now, um, just to make sure that they're kind of preparing themselves as, as this ramps okay. up. And this went into effect at the first of the year, right? So like this is already in effect. We should already have these things in place. There's no grace period. Yeah, there is no grace period that I've seen. It is already in effect. Although, again, um, I imagine that they are, without putting it in writing, being a little bit lenient on this just because it is a brand new thing. There's a lot of requirements that go along with it. And so, and you know, even though this was voted on in 2020, I think most people don't generally pay attention until it actually (laughs) goes into effect. So I know a lot of people are playing catch up to kind of get everything in order for this, but... Um, I imagine for at least the first six months, maybe a year, they'll they'll be a little lenient now. Well, we have no questions. So hopefully we just did a great job answering all of the questions. (laughs) Uh, But if if there are any questions, you know, after if you're not watching this live, I will send the questions to Molly and, and we'll try to get them answered for you after the fact if that does come up. But uh, next week, we'll be talking about fraud, abuse, and waste uh, with Molly again. So thank you so much for your time, Molly. I really appreciate you coming on. I hope you enjoyed this episode. 
If you'd like to learn more about 3Pi Squared and the products and services that we provide, please go to www.3pisquared.com. And if you enjoy our podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe or add it to your favorites. This way you won't miss any episodes. And you can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn by searching 3Pi Squared. Thank you so much for listening.